Hello, all my true crime loving friends. This is Amelia Allen, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. Today's episode is going to be a double feature, so to say. Our first case is a listener suggestion, and it doesn't have a ton of information on it. It's kind of shorter story, so I paired that with another case just to give you a bit longer episode. I'm going to do like our episode a little while back where I covered three different cases where I'm going to talk about the case, do my musings on that case, and then have a little snippet of music to cue that we're going into the next case. Uh, Nobody told me that was confusing from the episode we had a little while ago, so that's what I'm going to do. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So as I said, today's first case is a listener suggestion. This is from one of our listeners that took advantage of my request to send in a case and get 20% off merch. I have stopped that, but I might do it again in a little bit because we did get a few interesting cases out of it. So let's get started on our first case. Phoenix Samantha Linnea Vigil was born in Colorado Springs on June 2nd, 2001, and everyone that knew her would just say that she had a pure heart. She graduated from Bijou High School in 2019 and went on to Pima Institute, where she was actually just about to graduate as a medical assistant and start her externship. While attending Pima Institute, she also worked at King Supers. So for my listeners that are not from Colorado, King Supers is a local grocery store. And she was a cashier at the store and had been working there for a while. Phoenix had a brother whose name was Silvio DeMarco Lucio Anglada. He was born in Colorado Springs in April 22nd, 2003. So he was just a little bit younger than her. And their friends and family said that Silvio could make anyone laugh. He just had this really bright sense of humor and just always had a smile on his face. He had actually graduated early from high school, from Tesla High School, and was set to walk in his graduation in May of 2021, just this last May. Silvio was kind of a mama's boy from what everybody says, and he really was just eager to get out on his own and start working, and he really wanted to do the best that he could to provide for his mom and be supportive of her. Phoenix and Silvio had really grown close over these last couple years prior to 2021. Phoenix had had a boyfriend that she had been together with for a few years, and his name was Tristan Griffin. And while the couple had fights like any other couple, they never became physical, never became threatening through their relationship. But just before February 2021, the two had ended up breaking up. Phoenix had been living with Tristan Griffin and her best friend for under a year. So she was in the process of moving out and getting all of that figured out. And even though they were already broken up at this point, from what family members have said, this was still a relatively civil process between the two. There'd not been a lot of drama or any aggression going on about it. That was until February 3rd, 2021. Phoenix had called Silvio and asked him to come over because according to Olivia Prinzel's reporting for the Gazette, her ex Tristan Griffin was being, quote, a jerk. 
And when she called, she didn't seem overly upset or scared, but just kind of seemed like she needed some support in whatever situation was going on. So Silvio asked his friend, Joseph Vieira, to give him a ride over to Phoenix's apartment to help out. The next details that we know come from a neighbor that was in one of the apartments below Phoenix's. This neighbor noted that there was no tussle in the apartment, it was quiet, and then all of a sudden she heard 15 gunshots. She could hear a woman screaming, followed by the yell of a man and three more gunshots. The last sound that this neighbor would hear was another gunshot that sounded like it possibly came from a different gun. This downstairs neighbor, among with many other people in the immediate area, reported the gunshots to 911. At around 5 p.m., police responded to the second floor apartment at the 4300 block of Loomis Avenue. This apartment was located near South Academy Boulevard and B Street, which is an area called Stratmore. It's uh, just north of Fort Carson and on the southern end of Colorado Springs. The scene that they uncovered was grisly, sad, and disturbing. The suspect, Tristan Griffin, Phoenix's boyfriend who was 19 years old, had shot both Phoenix, who was also 19, Silvio, who was 17, Joseph, who was 20, and then shot himself. Phoenix, Silvio, and Griffin were all dead when police arrived at the scene. Joseph had been critically wounded and died the next day in the hospital. What seemed to be a normal circumstance had somehow turned into a quadruple shooting, a triple homicide, and a suicide. This entire scenario was unimaginable. According to Olivia Prinzel's reporting for the Gazette, the victim's aunt, Amber Lozana, said of Phoenix and Silvio, quote, They were innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. They weren't involved in any kind of drugs or gangs or anything crazy like that, unquote. Susan Griffin, Tristan Griffin's mom, would tell the media that his upbringing was troubled and she had raised him as a single mother, but he was active in football and church activities, and it seemed that that was helping him kind of recover from this initially troubled life. Police viewed this incident as an incident of domestic violence. There was a GoFundMe created for the victims, and I have left that on the AltitudeCrime.com page if you're interested. It is still there if you'd like to make a donation. And additionally, while this may seem like an open and shut case, I'm sure both authorities and the families of the victims would like to have more information if you have it. If you have any information on this case, please reach out to the El Paso County Sheriff at 719-520-6666. So sorry guys, I started you off with a brutal one there. So let's get into a few thoughts about this case. Musing number one, in covering true crime in my own home state, it will never cease to amaze me just what a small world it is. I also had a relative that graduated from Bijou High School and not very far away from when Phoenix did. And it just makes you realize, again, like I've always said, it's not about the morbidity of these cases. That's not why I do this podcast. I do it because these are real people. They are real victims. They are real families that are hurting. And in doing cases that are from my home state, that helps me keep that connection. And while it makes it hard to tell these stories, it makes it all the more important. Musing number two, this case shows a sad reflection of uh, 
I don't know, of somebody's thought process, of somebody's rashness. Um, I'm not really sure how to finish that sentence, but this reaction to whether it be the breakup itself or some kind of altercation that may have happened in the time between the breakup and this shooting happening is not a normal reaction by any means. Most people break up, move on. Something like this does not happen. This is not a quote-unquote normal circumstance. But sadly enough, it shows you that you never know how someone else is going to react. And I feel like domestic violence situations usually play out this way because someone reacts in a way that a reasonable person would not, either due to control issues or not wanting that person to be with somebody else or whatever heightened emotion that person has. I do have to kind of wonder if Silvio and Joseph showing up created some kind of threat and that aggravated the situation, but being that the neighbor didn't hear any kind of fighting or anything like that prior to that, it's it's hard to think that that's the case. Musing number three. As I've said, a case like this leaves less answers than questions. And I feel so much for these families because it's tough enough to deal with a friend or family member committing suicide in and of itself. That's a whole dynamic and grief process on its own. But coupled with that your loved one also hurt and killed other people in the process is difficult on both sides. It's difficult for Joseph and Phoenix and Silvio's families because they're families of murdered victims Whereas on Tristan's side, you have a family that is victim of both suicide and someone who was a murderer. So there's just so much grief in this case that it's it's so hard to really separate out the dynamic here. And there's just, like I said, there's no answers in that makes it even worse because you can't ask that person what they were thinking or you can't ask anybody there what happened it's really just all left up to the imagination and that's pretty horrifying and hard to ever get any closure out of okay so I've already told you a pretty sad and terrible story to start this episode with and I'm pairing it with a case that we mentioned in our last episode which actually turns out to be a pretty tangled web I had no idea when I started researching this that it was gonna be kind of a rabbit hole the second case we're covering in this episode is the disappearance of Beth Miller now I mentioned her in our episode about Janelle Matthews because her father came to help out the Matthews family when and Janelle went missing. So you have a lot to ponder about the first case and I'm about to add on to it. Elizabeth Ann Miller was born on July 27th, 1969. And in August, 1983, she was 14 years old. Beth, as I will call her through the rest of the episode, was a freshman at Clear Creek Secondary School and was one of seven children. She lived in Idaho Springs, which is just west of Denver. On August 16th, 1983, Beth went jogging. Now she usually jogged with her sister, but on this specific day, she went alone. Sources differ on this. Some say that Beth played baseball and some say that she played basketball, but whichever sport it was, she jogged to stay in shape for the season. The last time that Beth was seen was around 10 a.m. at a park nearby her house. 
and she was seen in her jogging clothes. She was out for a jog, so she had on tennis shoes, white shorts, and a blue t-shirt. After the sighting at the park, Beth was never seen again. Alarm bells went up when her mom, Eileen Miller-Taylor, got home that night. She had been working a shift as a clerk at the Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office. The search began that night when Beth did not return home and did not leave a note saying that she would be somewhere else or be late. It was really uncharacteristic of Beth to have been a runaway, but her family also had some backup to the theory that she would not be a runaway. Beth babysat often to earn money, and she didn't take any of this money with her. She also had no identification or any other personal belongings with her, and it seemed unlikely that somebody would run away and not take any of those items with them. A large-scale search happened the day after Beth disappeared. This included 200 volunteers, both on foot and on horseback, and two helicopters even joined in the search. Stores around town that were open had her missing flyer in the window, and the stores that were closed were closed because their owners were taking part in the search. Between the volunteers and the authorities, they were able to canvass every home in Idaho Springs, and it has a population of 2,800 people. So every home in one day is pretty impressive, even though it is a small town. Beth's dad, Michael Miller, was familiar with the chances of finding Beth. He had a 13-year career in South Dakota in law enforcement. According to Kirk Mitchell's reporting for the Denver Post, Michael got on television and begged for information from, quote, anyone who has seen anything that would help us locate Beth, unquote. But four days into the search, there were zero leads on where Beth could be. Desperate investigators even brought in six psychics to try to help fuel some kind of leads. And the psychics thought that she was being held alive somewhere. In December 1983, a woman in Denver named Dorothy Dottie Brevard began to send 32,000 reward posters across the United States. And by the summer of 1984, 100,000 missing person flyers had been circulated across the U.S. And Beth's name had been listed on bumper stickers that people would start to put on their cars. Volunteer efforts over the years since Beth went missing have extended to searching the gold in mine shafts in the area, but have turned up nothing. Over the years of the investigation, the Clear Creek County Sheriff, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and the FBI have all investigated the case. There have been a number of false sightings of Beth throughout the years, including sightings in Florida, North Carolina, Arkansas, Georgia, and Utah, but they never led to Beth or any kind of answers. In 1985 in Tampa, a woman claimed to be Beth, but when her parents flew out there, they quickly ruled out that she was not. Through the years of investigations, the case has brought up many men known to attack or kill teens, but really to no avail. One of the leads that came up even included a man's girlfriend who was overheard talking about how he disposed of Beth's body, but this lead also went nowhere. And actual suspects have been identified over the years, not just persons of interest, but actual suspects in her disappearance and or murder. But without a body, it's hard to level any kind of charge on a suspect, especially based on a circumstantial case, which is probably all investigators would have at this point. But let's dive into some of these suspects that have come up over the years. The first suspect came up pretty early on. Beth had told some of her family that someone in their 20s had been following her around, and many witnesses recalled seeing a man flirting with Beth the day she went missing. 
This man was described as being in his 30s, fair-skinned, around 175 pounds, with light brown hair that was parted to the side and about collar length. He also wore eyeglasses and had an overall neat appearance. This suspect was driving a 1975 or 76 pickup, which was thought to be a faded red Ford Courier with a white camper shell and out-of-state plates. The truck also had a brown strip of paint about a foot wide on both sides. Some people in town that had had interactions with this man knew him as Claude. From what witnesses said, he had gotten angry when Beth did not engage in conversation with him when he was flirting with her. In addition to this initial lead, not soon after Beth disappeared, a man in a red courier was called in from a Fort Morgan gas station by the attendant. Fort Morgan is located about two hours east of Idaho Springs. The man in question went in for gas, and when he saw a bunch of Beth's missing flyers, he took the entire stack and left the station in a hurry. The attendant did get his license plate number, and it was a canceled Denver plate. But from what I see, this is the last time that the suspect is mentioned in the case pretty much anywhere. Another suspect that comes up is basically someone just called the Ohio man, and he's remained largely unidentified in most sources. And from what most sources say, he was investigated for several years, but no charges were ever put on him. Now, I'm not sure if this is the same Ohio man, but I did find a source that gave some more description, and I'm assuming this maybe is the same person, or it could be a separate suspect. In December 1997, James Parton, who was 35, was arrested for distributing child pornography. He was actually a former resident of Idaho Springs. And two very creepy things found in his home linked him to two cases in Colorado. One was a picture of John Benet Ramsey, although he was ruled out in her case. And the other was a newspaper clipping about Beth's disappearance, along with a map of Idaho Springs with three X's on it. Again, if this is the same Ohio man, no charges were ever put on him. And if it's not the same Ohio man, I only found him really mentioned in one or two sources and nothing could have come of it. The year after Beth's disappearance, there was a person of interest named, and I'm not sure if he was ever upgraded to a suspect. It doesn't look like it. But on August 9th, 1984, Robert Arnold Storm was listed as a person of interest. He was an 18-year-old who was being held in the El Paso County Jail. Earlier that year, on May 5th, 1984, he had fatally shot Shauna Webb, his 17-year-old co-worker at the movie theater that he worked at. Storm had made and signed graffiti in Colorado Springs that basically taunted if police wanted to know where Beth's body was. This graffiti claimed that her body was near a King Supers, which again is a grocery store and is an odd trend in this episode. When confronted by investigators, he denied this and said he knew a Beth Miller, but it was a different Beth Miller. As I said earlier, I don't see that he was ever upgraded to a suspect, and I think this also fell off as probably not very credible either. In 1995, a serial killer in Mississippi, whose name I wasn't able to track down, said he had killed Beth, but his story didn't add up and it really was not credible, and investigators kind of thought, you know, he was just throwing her name in the hat, so to say. But before we go on to our most credible suspect, I want to talk about an interesting find that happened in Empire, Colorado in 1994. 
Now, Empire is the next town west of Idaho Springs as you travel on Interstate 70 into the mountains. And there were some items that were buried right near the interstate in Empire. These included bone fragments, but they were identified as animal and not human. There was canvas fabric, which was very degraded and had been buried there for quite a while. And while we don't know of Beth going missing with any canvas items, it could potentially show the age of something buried there. Also buried in the same location was one blonde hair. And Beth Miller was a blonde. In 2004, this hair was sent to the FBI, but tests so far have been inconclusive. And this last little bit of information, I cannot confirm if this was in the same find. It sounds like it was later on. And take a, you know, this with a grain of salt because I only found this information in one place. But supposedly a shirt matching the one Beth went missing in was also found near Empire, Colorado. Okay, so with all those other angles laid out, let's get into our most credible suspect. In 1993, investigators looked into a man named Edward Apodaca based on a tip that was seven years old. Now, I'm unclear on why it took so long for them to look into this tip, but Apodaca was previously a cop and could have had connections that could have kept him from becoming a suspect earlier on. And that's something we'll talk about a little later. The tip that investigators were going on was that Apodaca had killed Beth and her body was buried in the forest somewhere near Idaho Springs. On August 13th, 1983, which was just a few days before Beth disappeared, a witness had seen Apodaca and Beth talking. They were seen sitting in a red or rust-colored pickup truck with a camper shell, and this truck had New Mexico plates. Now, from what I understand, it seems like this witness was able to remember some of the numbers or maybe some combination of the license plate numbers. And a license plate that had matching plate numbers, either in total or in portion, would later be found at Apodaca's residence. His ex-girlfriend, Viola Moya, claimed that she helped bury Beth's remains in the mountains surrounding Idaho Springs. And while cadaver dogs did hit positively in the area that she pointed out, digs since then have found no evidence or remains in this particular area. Moya was listed as a suspect as investigators thought that she could have been present when Apodaca kidnapped and potentially killed Beth. Moya confessed twice to being involved, but then recanted both times. But she has failed a polygraph as well, which we know is not admissible in court and not a perfect science, but it always kind of gives you a little inkling. But investigators would actually never get any more on this lead because they couldn't talk to Apodaca himself. As of 1993, his wife, Anne Louise Apodaca, and mother-in-law, Frizzell Aguilar, were in prison for murdering him. His wife is now serving life in prison in New Mexico. Despite investigators never being able to question Apodaca themselves, he remains the most credible suspect, and Beth's family actually believe that he was responsible for her death and disappearance. In 2007, a grand jury was created to focus on law enforcement's handling of the case, as well as Edward Apodaca possibly being responsible for Beth's disappearance and murder. 
According to Gary Shapiro's reporting for Nine News, the grand jury report said there was a, quote, clear lack of professionalism, unquote, in the investigation of Beth Miller's case. In the same article, Clear Creek County Under Sheriff Bruce Snelling responded with, quote, We are not perfect in what we do. We still to this day make some mistakes, some errors. They're certainly not done intentionally. They're just errors that occur. So with that being said, I'll just tell you at the time they did the best they could, unquote. But the grand jury was disbanded in November 2007 without giving any further indictments in Beth's case. Beth's family had her ruled legally deceased in 1994. As with many of these cases, Beth's disappearance put a huge strain on the family, and in 1987, her parents had divorced. Beth's sister, Lynn Miller Granger, joined the Idaho Springs Police Force in 1990 at the age of 26. Her decision was based on her sister's disappearance when she was young. She was about 19 at the time that Beth went missing. Larimer County Sheriff Jim Alderden believes the case was bungled from the beginning and that some political details kept any progress from happening in the case. While new efforts have been made in the case, I have seen in one source that some of the original files may have been lost. And again, take that with a grain of salt because I did only read it in one location. To this date, Beth Miller's remains have not been found and her case is considered open. If Beth Miller were alive, she would be 52 years old. I have included a picture of Beth at the time of her disappearance, as well as an age progression of her at 41. This was the last one done prior to her being declared deceased. You can see those pictures at altitudecrime.com. If you have any information on Beth's case, no matter how small, please contact the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Missing Person and Children Unit at 303-239-4312 or the Idaho Springs Police Department at 303-567-4291. Okay, so I told you guys that was going to be a tangled web. So I have some thoughts on this. You know I do. Musing number one. Okay, I'm going to get a little feminist here for a second, but I'm just going to point out that how often do you hear about men or young adult men going missing when they go for a jog? I can't think of any time I've heard of that. Can you? So for my male listeners, just take a moment for that to sink in because that's something that you just don't have to worry about. And it's something that women worry about literally every time they walk out the door. You could get snatched anywhere. Musing number two. So I find it really interesting that this comes up often about there being maybe potentially some office politics that kept Apodaca or maybe some other suspect from being dealt with sooner. The really interesting thing to me about this is that Beth's mom worked at the sheriff's office. So I have a really hard time unpacking that when it's like she was there and she'd have access or could overhear things. So like, I mean, it's definitely possible that, you know, one or two people could have, you know, bungled the whole thing by trying to protect somebody or hide something. But it seems kind of impossible to do it with somebody that works in your same office. Musing number three. So in touch base on these buried items that were found, that was the bones, piece of canvas, and hair. And I'm going to say even if they're totally unrelated to Beth Miller's case, that that find absolutely creeps me out. Musing number four. So here's another interesting dynamic that we've seen in a couple other episodes, but I find it really interesting, these people that claim to be missing kids. 
So I think there's probably multiple reasons why this happens. Some of it could be just pure malice and that you're trying to benefit off of someone's loss. But then I think there's got to be people that honestly think that they maybe really could be that kid. And, you know, maybe that just speaks to coming from a foster system or something like that, where there's typically some kind of delay in psychological growth or there's some mental health issues. I think it goes either way that there's people that are just really awful people taking advantage of it or there's some people that really honestly believe that they could be these people and it's for reasons that are really beyond their ability to cope with. Musing number five. So I want to touch base on this thing about taking the cadaver dogs out to where Apodaca's ex-girlfriend said that Beth's body was buried. So the cadaver dogs hit there, but when they dig, there's nothing there. Now, I don't know the exact science of scent, but that does make me wonder, could her body have been moved at some point? And you got to think, if this is an ex-girlfriend and she was involved, that maybe that was a move that if she snitched, it was a way to discredit her if she took them to this location and there was no body there. And I'm going really far into the, you know, the rabbit hole here, but it was something I thought about. Musing number six. So I was going to expand a bit more on Shauna Webb's and Apodaca's murders, but there's really not a lot reported on either of these cases. So really what I've given you in the body of this episode is really the most that there is to know. So I just wanted to let you guys know that because I do typically elaborate when we mention something like that. And musing number seven, because you know I hope there's always still answers. So the blonde hair that was found in Empire, Colorado in that very creepy selection of buried items came back from the FBI as inconclusive. As I mentioned in Janelle's case last week, we can always hope that there is a jump in science. What we were able to do 30 years ago is not the same as what we're able to do now. And you can hope that that science just continues to trend in that direction. And who knows, it may be a long way down the line, but maybe someday we'll get an answer on that. Well, guys, thanks so much for hanging in for this episode. I know I have unpacked a lot on you. This has been a pretty brutal episode and a lot of rabbit holes and a lot of things to think about. So if you have any interesting thoughts or even if you don't think they're interesting, still share them with me. You can find me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And if you go to altitudecrime.com, there is a link to a contact us page with an email if you'd rather do that. Speaking of altitudecrime.com, you can find all the source materials as well as photos for this episode on the website. And if you haven't done so already, it's probably still on your screen. Please, please, please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. Or if you're one of my wonderful YouTube listeners slash watchers, please make sure to hit that bell icon. You'll get notifications on any of those platforms of midweek content that will probably start coming out some more here in the next couple months as we continue to cover cases from previous episodes. Well, thanks again for spending part of your week with me. It's the best part of my week. I hope it makes part of your week better. And I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime.
Episode 43, The Loomis Apartment Murders and the Beth Miller Case, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.